charity itself and philanthropy really comes out of colonial Puritans. Um, it turns out that they were aggressive capitalists when they came over to the United States. Um, but as Calvinists, they were taught that self-interest would send them straight to hell. Um, so they kind of developed charity and philanthropy as a way to engage in moral cleansing, um, to kind of assuage themselves of guilt, um, to do their penance. And so charity has kind of, at least throughout the history of the United States, existed as a way for capitalists to kind of offload some of that guilt by offloading their earnings. Well, hello, everyone. Thanks again for joining us here at the Interesting Times podcast. Um, it's great to be back. Hope everyone is doing okay. So as I'm sure um, most people are aware of by now, a few weeks ago, uh, there was a somewhat calamitous uh, collapse of the Bitcoin and kind of other blockchain finance group uh, FTX and its uh, corresponding investment firm Alameda. Uh, this was notably headed by one Sam Bankman-Fried, otherwise known as SVF. And he, in particular, is an interesting figure for a whole host of reasons, um, but uh, notably was quite closely associated with a movement known as Effective Altruism, or EA. Um, seems that everything needs to have an abbreviation these days. Um, and that is a movement that in some ways is built around the notion of trying to use advanced data and analytics to harness and utilize uh, philanthropic funds and donations from wealthy people or even people who are middle class or upper middle class um, and direct those funds using this data and analytics to the most effective, you know, hence the name, areas in terms of need around the world. And, um, you know, to be honest, uh, I just mentioned he was interesting, but in, in other ways, um, Sam Bankman-Fried is really not that interesting. Um, his ultimate scheme was fairly run-of-the-mill and straightforward, um, pretty much a straight-up theft. So um, not that it is a minor issue. I mean, we're talking about billions of dollars, but uh, in, in some ways, he's not really that fascinating of, of an individual, and we're, we're not going to be spending a whole bunch of time um, talking about him this episode. But what did stick out to me in this was um, the emergence of effective altruism that had kind of been around and things that people know about and received some coverage in the press from time to time. And, and just personally speaking for myself, I think I you know actually listened to like a long form piece on effective altruism that I featured Sam Bankman Freed, oh maybe three or four months ago. Um, and so that was really the time when EA. Uh, got put on my personal radar um, to the extent that that matters. But uh, suffice to say, even in hearing about it then when when Sam Bankman-Fried was on top of the world, quote unquote, and, you know, testifying in Washington and hobnobbing with, with all kinds of awesome people, I guess, I found, you know, there was a lot of dubious kind of assumptions and propositions um, lurking um, behind what was, you know, seemingly, you know, um, and, and, and in some ways is a, a well-meaning and, and good-hearted effort to make the world a better place. Uh, and so um, I thought this was an opportunity to kind of explore not just effective altruism, but some of the climate, um, intellectual climate, historical climate, business climate that kind of gave rise to this movement and was really taken up by um, this individual, Sam Bankman-Fried. And so uh, I, I just thought this was a good opportunity. And fortunately for you, the listener, I was able to convince um, people that are much smarter and much more articulate than me to come on um, and, and who have huge amounts of expertise in areas that pertain to these matters to come on the show um, and just kind of hash through some of these things and use this notion of effective altruism as kind of an entry point into a wider discussion of the host of issues uh, we are facing in, in contemporary society, um, locally, globally, and, and obviously internationally. 
Uh, and the conversation, I think, really has a great flow and, and is really able to draw upon um, the particular expertise of our guests and the kind of insights they bring to the world. So um, I'm really excited to get into it. Uh, but before we do that, uh, I wanted to... Um, once again, as always, just uh, thank you for listening. And um, please, uh, if you haven't already, just go over to the um, website, uh, interestingtimes.substack.com and subscribe. Uh, I would really appreciate it. Thanks again. So before we launch into the conversation, I'd like to just take a moment to introduce our two guests a little more formally. Firstly, we have Abigail Schneider, who is Associate Professor of Marketing and the Director of the Sustainable Economic and Enterprise Development Institute in the Anderson College of Business and Computing at Regis University in Denver, Colorado. Uh, her research focuses on consumer judgment and decision-making in relation to individual, societal, environmental well-being, particularly in the context of public health, environmental sustainability, and digital technology and she has published in journals such as the Journal of Consumer Affairs, Business Horizons, and the International Journal of Nonprofit and Voluntary Sector Marketing. In addition to being such a successful scholar, um, uh, Abigail also is the host of a podcast, Growing Good Business. Um, I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes. Uh, I think you know, it's, it, I listened to um, it already. It's fantastic. And I think you're going to see um, that Abigail really occupies a really interesting space in terms of um, not only the scholarly discourse, but also the public discourse, and, and just adds a host of valuable expertise and insights to the discussion we have. And along with Abigail Schneider, we are fortunate to have back again um, Ira Allen, who uh, was on the show with me oh, maybe um, five, six months ago. I'm, I'm not exactly sure, uh, where we talked a lot about issues of kind of um, collapse and and social breakdown and and what would come after that and that's really one of um, Ira's uh, central points of expertise and and really what he thinks about in terms of his um, intellectual work but also in terms of uh, the work he does with engaging the public with these really central and important questions of our times. Ira is associate professor of rhetoric writing and digital media studies in the Department of English and of Politics and International Affairs at Northern Arizona University. Um, his scholarship and translations tend to explore the usefulness of rhetorical theory for scholars across the humanistic disciplines. And in conjunction with his scholarly work, he's um, written a host of popular essays in, uh, in publications such as Jewish Journal, Common Dreams, and many others. Currently, Ira is working on a book manuscript that focuses on how constitutions might be written to promote democracy after disaster and on truth of witnessing in an era of staggered collapse, right? And um, that is kind of one of the motifs that Ira works with that comes up in the discussion we have. Uh, Ira kind of works from this framework that um, rather than thinking about when will things collapse, imagining that, you know, we are living within this, you know, what he calls staggered collapse, which I think provides a, a really interesting um, angle into some of the issues that come up in our discussion. So again, as always, thanks so much for joining us. Um, I want to thank Ira and Abigail once again for taking time out of their busy lives to come on the show. Um, once again, please check out Abigail's excellent podcast, Growing Good Business. There will be a link in the show notes. And please just keep up to date with all things on the interesting times. As you may notice, there is an essay that was published just a few days ago that provides kind of some uh, of my uh, ideas and thoughts about this issue of effective altruism and where it comes from. And there is a touch of an overlap between what's in the essay and what's on the episode, but really not so much. Um, they, they have similar topics and similar motifs, but I think they kind of are operating in different realms and in kind of taking different tacks. So um, suffice to say, I think you should listen to the podcast and read the essay and tell all your friends and family how awesome The Interesting Times is. You can give them the gift of a totally free subscription to The Interesting Times. That will certainly garner you the appreciation of all your family, friends, and colleagues. So uh, just go ahead and do that. It's the gift that keeps on giving. All right. Well, thanks so much again. And without further ado, let's get to the conversation.
Okay, Abby Schneider and Ira Allen, thanks so much for joining us here at the Interesting Times Podcast. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm really honored to be here. All right. Well, no, it's a, it's an honor to have both of you on, and I really appreciate you taking the time to join us here. And uh, the reason I wanted to put this episode together is the goal here with the Interesting Times as a site and, and as a podcast is to try to think about things that are really in the kind of headlines and, and contemporary news and try to you know, delve in a little to some of the undercurrents and, and you know, social forces and historical forces that kind of are a template upon which these events are taking place. And so the kind of proximate cause for getting together today is to talk uh, about um, this concept of effective altruism. And obviously, um, the trigger for that would be the kind of over the last several weeks, the really striking kind of just total meltdown of the FTX business and and platform for, you know, trading cryptocurrencies and so forth. And, uh, you know, connected with that, the evaporation of a, a massive fortune um, by one Sam Bankman-Fried, commonly referred to as SBF. Um, and he um, was a, a major figure in this effective altruism. It's kind of a movement, kind of subculture. And it's one of those interesting ones that has kind of, you know, sat around the, you know, like a meso area. I mean, it's not totally unknown, but it was kind of a little bit below the surface. And it has really burst into um, the mainstream with the downfall of, of Bankman Freed and, you know, due to his connection with this effective altruism movement. So first and foremost, and uh, maybe we'll turn to Abby first, I kind of wanted to, you know, just get some of your thoughts or, or any kind of reactions to what we've witnessed with FTX and Bankman Freed more generally. Yeah, absolutely. So obviously, this story has gotten a lot of attention over the past few weeks. Um, and I don't necessarily want to rehash what's already been said. But as a consumer psychologist, what I found particularly interesting is the reaction per se. Um, you know, people can't take their eyes off a train wreck. And in our and Kevin, forgive me for using this term, but neoliberal society, People are really enamored with money and with celebrity. And so this is just really the perfect storm for the media. Um, but I think what hasn't been discussed quite as much are first the fact that crypto is so carbon intensive. Literally, it's partially resurrecting the coal industry in the United States. It's contributing to climate change, which is an actual existential threat happening right now, not a thousand years in the future, um, when humans likely won't even exist if we don't drastically reduce emissions and sequester significant amounts of CO2 from the atmosphere in the next seven years. Um, so that's one thing that I think deserves a little more attention. And maybe that's something we'll dive into a bit today. Um, and then second, something that I think has also been somewhat overlooked are just the issues with philanthropy more broadly, um, which is that it completely ignores the structural issues that allow a few people and corporations to amass extreme wealth while a billion other people are living on less than a dollar a day. Um, and I think with all the press that's been going around, with all the other critiques of EA and utilitarianism, that these are a couple issues um, that maybe haven't gotten quite as much attention as I would have expected. Excellent. Yeah. And I, I do think it's um, um, important that you highlight that, you know, uh, cryptocurrency is a is a is a carbon based industry. Right. And, and there's something almost uh, darkly poetic about the notion of you know, reconstituting the coal industry and burning a bunch of coal to make crypto, you know. So, so yeah, there, that is a little um, insane that we're just burning coal to um, make a, a kind of technological currency or, or coded currency. I don't even know what it is, but uh, let, let's jump over to Ira and what your kind of take on this is. Well, I mean, I, th I think Abby's take hits what's most important, which is that the stakes of the public conversation are what's really interesting here. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, a nominal billionaire, as as all billionaires are, right? We were not in the days of Adam Smith writing about merchants bringing their bringing their ships back by their booyan. Harbors, right? about the old so, days of booyan. Yeah, yeah. So all all billionaires are nominal billionaires. So a great deal of uh, uh, leverageability is what was lost ultimately, right? Um, the ability to leverage uh, uh, nominal value for uh, future returns. And that's and what's interesting to me is the way the the public conversation about this 
as Abby noted, doesn't pick up on really some of the things that are most critical, uh, which is that the frame itself assumes massively destructive uh, current uh, engagement with the, with the world and does so in ways that, and I think this is something the long-termists and the effective altruists where they kind of, uh, 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 you know, bleed together or blend together. They, they have answers for that. I don't think their answers are very good, but it's interesting that it's not even really part, much part of the public questioning of this moment. There's a lot of like sort of obsession with this guy. Um, and I, and I just don't, for me, like what's the, so that's the one side of that. The flip side of that is effective altruism in general, you have, it, it has a bunch of people who are kind of, if you will, coming for it from the right. So then, so then the conversation is like, okay, um, this has, this has gone very badly in this one case. Um, is, is that indeed proof that it's a bad thing? And that, and that's a conversation that's coming from a number of people who are uh, one or another way, hoping to get back to some kind of, you know, <laughs> Ayn Randian, Milton Friedmanian, greed is good kind of position. Um, and so what's tricky, I think, about like finding a way to insert our conversation into that larger discourse is the question of, okay, cool. How do you name what's totally unviable about this way of thinking about the world, which includes, uh, in my view, a completely insane uh, understanding of, of uh, uh, wh- how best we prepare for the future relative to our current catastrophe? How do you, how do you offer criticism of that without ratifying the criticism that it's getting by people who actually their their position is well we really it was the altruism that was the bad part <laughs> mm. no and and i think that um uh you you really hit on that like there's just a whole deeper subtext to this and, and in some ways uh, much more important i like to i love that term stakes i i, I always stress that um when when i'm teaching and, and and i try to think about it when i'm writing what are the stakes and i really like how you framed it that way that um, the, the stakes of, of this debate and how we're understanding this are, are really important. Um, but I would, uh, ask you, um, or Abby, um, you know, I don't want to put you guys on the spot. Uh, either one is, uh, you know, if either of you wanted to, I think one thing we should do is, is first, um, just briefly say what effective altruism is and maybe, um, if someone wants to take on, because I think all of us are, are bringing a somewhat critical lens to effective altruism. Um, as Iris started to outline, but try to give it what you think is the best case for effective altruism. Um, the, the, you know, Ira or Abby. Abby, can I try strongmanning that and uh, see if you want to add? To it? Sure, sure. Yeah, okay. go for it. Okay, so to try and strongman the position, uh, an effective altruist uh, defender or proponent says, at any given moment. Um, the amount of good that you can accomplish with philanthropy is intrinsically limited. And the question for anybody who wants to take whatever wealth they're holding and use it to improve the lot of others in the world should do so in ways that maximize well-being. And well-being itself can be one or another way um, quantified. And right. so there's a there's a whole whole bunch of different arguments within that kind of camp about how best to quantify well-being. But the basic idea is that one's responsibility even with one's philanthropy is to not just do things that uh, are, are closest to one's heart personally or feel most meaningful necessarily for the donor, but rather do things that increase the, uh, increase the well-being of the greatest number of people. Uh, or sometimes, uh, in some cases, non-human animals. Uh, although they're a little, I think they get very inconsistent about that very quickly. And so then that itself becomes the anchor for an idea of um, wealth earning or wealth garnering, let's say, since some of us don't necessarily agree that a lot of wealth is earned in any strong sense of the word. But wealth garnering is itself a good activity if its aim is to have uh, as much money, as much capital available at one's disposal 
to distribute in ways that maximize the good of all. Um, mm. and, and that's, I think that that's at least how I understand the basic position and, and like, you know, it's intuitively not idiotic. I think it has some extremely major problems, but it's intuitively not an idiotic position, at least understood. By yeah. Just to, to tack onto that before turning it um, back over to Abby, uh, w- just to add on to what you said, I think if I wanted to give like what I think is effective altruisms, kind of one of their focuses that is their a, a good argument or the argument that I think is one of their best points is that it, there is something to be said that there is somewhat of a disconnect between how um, available philanthropic funds like money donated is spent versus the places that it could do the most good or be the most useful. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That that they, that one point I've read from effective, effective altruism, I think, is is true that like often like something's in the headlines or, you know, you read about a billionaire giving money to Harvard's endowment. I mean, I think that's a fair point. Like, whoa, you're giving, you know, uh, 200 million dollars to Harvard, you know, um, and, and that is that really the best use of that 200 million dollars? And so I think that is a good point. But, um, uh, you know, I, I think as we'll get into, even though that, that yeah, may be a valid point, I think it. it in some ways, um, glosses over, uh, as I've already kind of been indicated, some bigger issues with with EA as a thought and and practice. But um, uh, turning it over to Abby, do you have any other kind of things we want to say about what's potentially, I don't know, I don't want to say good, but like some aspects of effective altruism that are maybe perhaps persuasive? Yeah, I mean, I think that in general, it's a simple argument that intuitively can be pretty appealing, who after all doesn't want to do the greatest good for the greatest number of people. Um, I think on the surface, that sounds like a good idea. Um, I think that wanting to use your time and money in a way that can really scale your impact is again, potentially appealing because we only have so much time and so much money. Um, And so how do we make that go the farthest? Yeah. I mean, I think the question is how do you do the most good in the world? And so, again, on the surface, I think there's a lot of appeal. And then I think it's not until you kind of unpack this that there are more issues that arise in terms of kind of to Ira's point, this is pretty nebulous. How do you define good? Um, how do you and do who? what is greatest? Not Exactly. And who defines what is good? Um, and how does their positionality impact the way that they see different problems um, and see a way to solve it? I mean, essentially, they're just throwing money at problems when money is the root of a lot of those problems. Um, mm-hmm. So that kind of doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, but I think there's also this question of the quantitative more versus the qualitative more. Um, so in terms of talking about the greatest good, Um, is this really as simple as kind of, um, this elegant, uh, expected value equation, or are there more quantitative concerns that need to be pulled in there, um, that math can't necessarily evaluate? Mm, Yeah, no. And I think you, you know, you hit upon this, uh, notion of, you know, how do we quantify these things and who, um, and Ira brought this into like, who is deciding, um, what the good is. And I, I, I think, you know, uh, reflecting on this and, and, you know, going over my own thoughts and, and um, about this in, in reaction, I, I really um, st- thought back to, and I, I actually don't remember who wrote it. It was in, in a text I was reading, but it was something along the lines of like um, writing about David Hume, uh, the, the British philosopher, um, I guess, 18th century. And he said, you know, Hume had this, you know, Hume's ethics in some way reflect, uh, you know, is, is an ethics for his time and that it was rooted in this belief that every reasonable person, um, you know, a reasonable person being a, you know, a middle-aged white British man would come to these conclusions. I mean, and, and Hume's brilliant. I mean, Hume's is, is not a, like a, you know, he's not some hack, right? But, but when it came to ethics, um, in, in this idea is that, well, ethics are, have this intuitive quality and we can understand ethics by understanding what sounds reasonable to us. And, and in some ways, the, the move, and you can even see this in, in again, another profound thinker like John Stuart Mill and, and famous utilitarian, the move is that, Ultimately, what we, the kind of advanced people, the advanced thinkers, the advanced 
intellects decide is a kind of reasonable standard um, would be under ideal conditions, the same conclusions that anyone in the world would come to. And that's a massive claim that is just oh, yeah. hanging there. It's and I trickled want, I want down to, epistemology. <laughs> well, I, and before I turn, because I want to hear uh, Iris' take on this. I mean, um, I, I don't want to run afoul. I'm not a political theorist, and I always get scared when I say political theory stuff that I'm, I'm, you know, so, some angry political theorist is going to be mad somewhere. <laughs> I mean, on the but, plus side, I mean, there's going to be some angry political theorists, right, no matter yeah. what you say. So you're yeah, saying- fair enough, fair point. Um, but I almost feel like, I mean, really, at the end of the day, it's it's like smuggling back in the philosopher king. Um, I, I'm going to try to dig it up. I have a quotation from Mill, and, it, and in some ways, it's it you know Plato's philosopher king that you know we are going we need people who are refined, who have these cultivated intellects and are cultivated beings that will know what is good and can tell us. And I think at least Plato comes through the front door, but this is like philosopher kings through the back door. Well, um, and without know. the philosophy. I mean, like part of what's, <laughs> it's like the philosopher king plus, you know, the Calvinist uh, 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 doctrine of, uh, of election. How, how do you know that uh, a person who is, you know, saved in the Calvinist doctrine of election has been saved? You can see it in, their uh, uh, their material accumulation of wealth. And this is part of the the sort of a certain kind of Protestant suffusion of the early American Republic. Uh, and so, who are the people who have the best epistemology? I that which is most divine, that which is closest to uh, a revealed word of one sort or another, uh, most correct, most godly, most philosoph- philosophical. Those who have the most wealth. Um, so it's so you don't even need all of the really pretty intricate arguments that Plato makes about how you're supposed to be educating the philosopher right. king and the rest of society. All of that kind of goes by the wayside. As, as long as somebody's accumulated a fair bit of wealth, then you know they have clearly they have clearly uh, earned the favor of a divine, and uh, you know. That how did they earn that favor in 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 the Calvinist you know tradition? They earned that favor by through their faith, through their faith that gave them specialized access to the revealed word. That is to say, they occupy a special epistemic position, and they occupy that in ways that are grounded not in their works or whatever, but are grounded in their particular being in their intrinsic knowingness and look at like the sort of way people think about somebody like Elon Musk uh, as, I mean, much lambasted in recent days, but nonetheless for a lot of people still as like somebody who like really knows or look at the way middle-class liberals look at, you know, (laughs) Bill Gates as like, Oh, he really knows. And how do you know he really knows he's got so much money. It's always he's got so well, it's, much money. It, well, it's the it's like the it is like a the, you know a a quintessential tautology, and you can think about this with how how is you know how was um, Bankman Freed like the toast of of the of the town of um, you know the global town right if if you uh, pardon the metaphor um, you know hobnobbing with all these elites and you know it, and it goes to this thing like. Um, well, you know, he's rich, so he must be important and he's important because he's rich, right? I mean, it, it really is just this kind of perfect circle. And, and it, what's always astounding when you think about, you know, we had the Elizabeth Holmes from Theranos, um, uh, sentencing this week. So I, I think these cases, um, have a lot in common in the sense that, um, once you, I mean, once you start to peel away the layers, I mean, it really wouldn't, and especially with FTX, I mean, what's come out, it wouldn't take a whole lot of due diligence. To really figure out that these people are just total schmoes and have no, even if you want to just live in the financial world of like what, you know, what a good financier is and, and how to play that game. Like even on those terms, we're just absolutely shoddy. Actors. Well, but, but, I mean, but, hold, but hold on. But Kevin, here there's there's an infrastructural piece that I think we have to and Abby might have mm. more to add to this. So I'll just say it really quickly. But the the pandemic meant that there were fewer effective investment vehicles for capital uh, in as much as there was less ultimately production of goods and services and circulation of them uh, in some ways. Um, I mean, I'm just going to stress in some ways, there was lots and lots and others. Um, And so I think it's not, and it's not 
totally coincidental that the last several years have seen this extraordinary transfer of capital into these, you know, various kinds of things that are more Ponzi scheme-ish like FTX, things that are, they're not Ponzi schemes, but they're, uh, I don't even know how to describe them. They're, they're hyper real NFTs. Um, why did, why does this come to accumulate so much capital? It comes partly because the capital only exists to the extent that it goes back into the money system. Somehow it has to circulate, right? And it has to, it has to be invested. And so when the money has to be invested somewhere to, to be real, so to speak, right? So-and-so's X billion dollars aren't X billion dollars unless they're leveraged for something. But if there's a little bit of a slowdown of global production over the course of a couple of years, the need to put things into digital services, broadly conceived, in the broadest possible sense, digital financial services, and of course, real estate, as we saw, mm-hmm. uh, it, it, the money has to go somewhere. The capital has to go somewhere. Uh, and I think that there's a there's a strong motivation then not to look too closely under the hood. You got to put the money somewhere. Right. No. Well, yeah. And you can, I mean, I, I read a book um, about the, the WeWork um, debacle, right? And so we can, we can list these off. Um, and you know, it, it was a kind of similar phenomenon where I think a lot of these guys knew that this was, was pretty shoddy, but um, you know, they just wanted to kind of stay on the bull long enough to, to, to hopefully cash out. But uh, Abby, I know you, you do um, work, you know, thinking about, you know, um, ethics and and how you know businesses kind of interact with with the world of of uh, uh, the civil sphere of, of ethics and, and philanthropy and so forth and you know, what how how do you think you know a, a, a kind of uh, because there isn't a business take but like how what you know what would you say about businesses kind of view of their role in contributing to the social good yeah that's a great question um, kind of going back and Ira had mentioned Calvinism. Charity itself and philanthropy really comes out of colonial Puritans. Um, it turns out that they were aggressive capitalists when they came over to the United States. Um, but as Calvinists, they were taught that self-interest would send them straight to hell. Um, so they kind of developed charity and philanthropy as a way to engage in moral cleansing, um, to kind of assuage themselves of guilt, um, to do their penance. And so Charity has kind of, at least throughout the history of the United States, existed as a way for capitalists to kind of offload some of that guilt by offloading their earnings. Um, Although, of course, the percentage of earnings that you're offloading compared to the percentage that you're keeping and the damage that the creating the earnings or um, Mm. garnering, as Ira said, I think that was a point well taken, um, that that itself is causing more damage than these tiny charities are able to kind of put a Band-Aid fix on. Um, But I think in the world of business, and um, my views don't necessarily (laughs) represent the views of many business professors or practitioners, um, I think a lot of them still think of philanthropy as the way that businesses do good. So it doesn't really matter what you do in your day job. You're just amassing all of this money, which I think was a lot of the ethos behind EA. Um, And then you give it away and that's great. You're giving away 1% of profits or whatever it is. Mm. Um, And then it kind of evolved into this triple bottom line where we care about people and the planets and profit because at the end of the day, if you're not making profit, then you're not able to do things that are good for people and the planet. Um, but it's for some companies, um, and I would say a growing number of companies, at least in the circles that I kind of travel in, um, you have B Corps where people genuinely do care um, and they mm. see business and enterprise is a way to genuinely scale solutions to a lot of these economic, social, and environmental challenges that we face. And I think um, particularly in the B Corp world and in social enterprise, um, what is a B Corp? Oh, sorry. I should have explained that. Um, No worries. So B Corp is a certification that businesses can go through where basically 
your sole mission is no longer just to produce profit. Um, it's a pretty rigorous certification process um, where you commit to social and environmental standards as well. Um, so for consumers, particularly in the United States, if you see packaging with a B and a circle around it, um, then those are companies that have been certified as going through this process and they're holding themselves to more rigorous standards in terms of their social and environmental impact. Um, so Patagonia, for example, is a classic um, example of a B Corp. Um, and there are others as well. So for example, uh, Ken and Carta is a multinational consultancy, and they actually recently became the first publicly traded B Corp on the London Stock Exchange, um, which is pretty phenomenal if you think about it, because as a publicly traded company, um, basically your legal fiduciary responsibility is to create profit for shareholders. But here's this consultancy that is certified to say, actually, we, we're committed to these other social and environmental goals as well. Um, it's not just about profit for shareholders. So this is interesting. I, I actually, um, I maybe uh, I, I must be ashamed to, um, to admit I've never heard of this B Corp concept uh, at all. Um, and it, it, it does sound, I mean, to me, and I, I'd be interested genuinely because uh, I, I'm just learning about this. Um, you know, it seems that this is a way for companies to try to get around the tag of simply that I, I do know the term greenwashing, right? Like kind of you yeah. know, fake fake efforts or efforts to like give the appearance of being environmentally conscientious that really, uh, you know, the famous like beyond petroleum for BP, right? That's still a massive oil producer, right? Um, uh, But it seems like this B Corp system, do you feel it does provide some genuine like standards that ensure that B Corp companies are are doing quite a bit more than simply um, quote unquote greenwashing? Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely done a lot as a third party that's genuinely holding these companies accountable. So mm. it's not just PR departments saying, hey, here's what we're doing. Um, and as consumers, you don't really know, are they really holding themselves to these standards? Or are they not? Um, the certification process is really, really hard. It means something if you become B Corp certified. Um, and I mean, within that, of course, I'm not so naive as to say that there's no greenwashing going on. I think there's certainly variability in the extent to which companies then market the amount of good that they're doing. Um, I think you have to really take it on a case by case basis. So, for example, a company like Patagonia, um, I mean, Yvonne Chouinard did not want to be a businessman. He did not want to be a billionaire. Um this just kind of all happened. He truly wanted to protect rocks. He really wanted to protect the environment. Mm. Um, and so, I mean, I think Patagonia is a great example. It's also kind of on the extreme side of like genuinely wanting to do good. Um, there are certainly. I wonder if I could jump in there because it's, I actually, yeah. what I like about Patagonia is in some ways, although uh, to my knowledge, uh, Shwina does not, uh, associated himself with the effective altruism groups. In some ways, his actions are the the gold standard for what effective altruism purports to be after. Right? Um, you make an enormous amount of money while doing something that's like basically environmentally sustainable along the way, and then and then you uh, set up a a legal structure that's going to ensure that the company continues, you know, performing uh, in, in ways that are environmentally and socially more or less just relative to the overarching structure of capitalism while simultaneously giving away basically all of your personal wealth. And so this is like, by contrast with somebody like Sam Bankman-Fried, who I actually don't really think is that interesting. I do think Shuinar is interesting, right? So like Bankman-Fried gets a lot of press be- in part, and this goes back to my first kind of point about the stakes, in part because it's a way for a lot of people who are basically shitty people and they want like sort of <laughs> like social license to continue being quite shitty to say, right. oh, see, see, all this altruism stuff, it's just a bunch of bunk. And and so I think Srinur is interesting by contrast in large part because he's the best case scenario, right? Yvon Srinur really did the thing. He did the thing. Absolutely, relative to the thing. But 
here's my here's my my sort of concern there here, and this maybe gets us uh, uh, into that larger structural conversation where where Abby kind of started us off. The difficulty is at the end of the day, the Schwinar family is the company's controlling shareholder uh, uh, in the Patagonia, sorry, the Patagonia Purpose Trust's controlling shareholder um, and also guides the philanthropic work performed by the Holdfast Collective where they where Schwinar gave all of his money. So in effect, although I actually align with the particular values that, that, that Schwinar and his family uh, are forwarding, and I think that those values are on the whole certainly not hastening our collapse as quickly <laughs> as a series of other values that are at stake. It's nonetheless the case that like in terms of what, say, the IPCC Working Group 3 calls for in, in um, its uh, discussion of pathways uh, to uh, transformation. Uh, what is the IPPC? Uh, the IPCC, the uh, oh, um, IPCC, yeah, yeah. So the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and, and Working Group Three is looking at essentially uh, what are what are our ways of avoiding worst outcomes. And part of what they call for is transformative system change at every level. So, right. so this is a highly conservative body, uh, uh, and, and not in the terms of like U.S. politics, but highly conservative in the sense of being. Uh, at any given moment, collecting settled science uh, to the best of its ability and projecting forward in minimalist ways to the best of its ability. What they're calling, what they have now, what has now been called for in our conservative models, like how do we conserve the best of, of our current world? We do so by transforming our systems. And so this is to go back to Schwinar and the ways in which, although he doesn't, to my knowledge, identify with the effect of altruism, uh, uh, and I and I, I liked what you said. Well, you called it something other than a movement, which I thought was good. A uh, subculture, which I think is actually it's essentially a capitalist subculture. It's not really a movement in any strong sense. It's a subculture of very rich people, <laughs> um, and they're sort of intellectual hangers on or uh, um, you know boosters. Um, and, and, and so, what's interesting is Srinar is the best case example for what they claim to value, and yet. His actions, which is way above what almost anybody else associated with that subculture is doing, doesn't, in fact, get to system transformation at all. And system transformation is what our conservative intergovernmental organization is calling for to prevent worst case scenarios. And so, in a sense, one way of thinking about effective altruism is in this, I think is a generous way of thinking about it. This is not necessarily my stance as a Marxist. This is like kind of trying to just to think within the terms of liberal popular culture. A generous way of thinking about effective altruism is it is a smart way of solving um, the problems we had 30 years ago. Right. Or, or, yeah, or even I think too, just kind of um, kicking, you know, like uh, kicking the ball into the, into the uh, tall grass, you know, just kind of like the ball being like a focus on um, significant, you know, social, political, economic reform that, you know, above and beyond the climate crisis, it doesn't sit well with me, this notion of the way to solve the problem is like, how do we get a bunch of rich people to shower money on the impoverished countries and people who are are dying from lack of food, dying from lack of basic medical care, um, it kind of, in a sense, like obscures the you know what I think is the, the question, the question, right? Well, how how did this system, you know, how did we end up in this position, and and how can we reconstitute, um, uh, you know, social institutions at the local, national, global level? to mitigate this as a, a kind of continuing outcome, right? And, and in some ways, it, 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 you know, that it shouldn't surprise us that, as Ira mentioned, you know, this is a very popular amongst the, the billionaire set because it doesn't call into question the, the very means and the very systems by which they accumulated this position to be the shot callers, right? I mean, they, you know, that um, people generally are going to find systems that they were um, you know, realms that they were highly successful in to be well-constituted realms, right? And so in some ways, it doesn't call into the kind of underlying constitution of the realm that produced them, 
Um, rather, it gives them a way to think about still maintaining that status of being on top financially while having this assuagement or this uh, sense of doing something good. And and I wanted to circle back to something Ira said about this idea of, you know, being really shitty people, but still being able to feel kind of good about them, themselves. And to draw that back into the underlying intellectual conditions that that give rise to this almost seemingly contradictory impulses to dominate and conquer and to, to get wealthy, but then also to be this kind of um, altruist, uh, to, to use the word of the day. I, I read recently, um, so, you know, gone back and read some of the work of, of Iris Murdoch, and she has this term that I think is, is uh, really speaks a lot to this. And she calls it like this constant desire within the kind of political theory, particularly within the West, to unleash what she calls the demonic personality. Right. And 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 not using she's not using it in a religious term, but she kind of goes all the way back to, again, you know, Plato's dialogues and Callicles. Right. This idea that, you know, people are searching for justifications to just be assholes, I mean, you know, to put it in a very crude term and and to to, you know, they want, you know, and, and, and you know, in the famous kind of speech by Callicles, right, in, in the Gorgias. Right. He's just saying, like, look, this is. You know, this is what is good in the world is to dominate and, and oh, any world like Socrates to try to subvert this, this notion of the powerful and the strong are meant to dominate the weak and, and ward over them and, and, you know, in some ways, uh, give them what, you know, whatever they feel is fair because they are dominant. I mean, that, and that seems to kind of carry on this, this idea of, um, wanting to, um, embrace what, again, Murdoch called the demonic personality and uh, square that with some sense of being a somewhat decent person. I don't know. Does that make any sense? Yeah, that totally makes sense. Um, there's actually this term in psychology and marketing called moral licensing. Um, and it's basically this idea that people generally want to see themselves as basically good people. Um and that if you do something good, then it kind of licenses you to be an a-hole at some point. Um, so the classic example is like you go to Whole Foods and you're buying all this organic food and doing the right thing and buying fair trade goods. And then you get out in the parking lot and totally cut people off. Um mm-hmm. And so Wait, it kind of works. Why are you things? personally attacking yeah. in this way? <laughs> I was about to say, Ira probably just did that this afternoon. <laughs> sorry, Abby. Ira, sorry. Ira throwing, no, throwing no, organic potatoes sorry. at someone's car. Abby, go on, go on, please. I know you too well. Um, but yes, yeah, so I mean, I think. There's that. And then there's the flip side, which is moral cleansing. So you go out and you do something terrible, but then you kind of make up for it with these virtuous behaviors. Um, And so, yeah, I think that's very resonant with even a lot of research that's being done empirically um, in consumer behavior and marketing. If we could just go back to the the B Corp as a structure that Abby brought up before. I mean, I think one of the things is I, I just to be you know cards on the table as you both know I, I think we're in a period of staggered collapse that we have essentially zero chance of uh, 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 avoiding large scale breakdown of most of our uh, existing social structures. Well, that about well, wraps I'm an it up optimist. For so I'm an optimist. <laughs> I'm an so optimist, much. and I think I think I think seriously, I think that the the very the different sorts of legal fictions that that we develop for understanding the relations between uh, economic activity and larger social goods matter quite a bit all the same not just because they can affect the scale of our catastrophe although that's also true but also because they those form the basis for different ways of thinking about what we do in the ruins and i think abby abby's bringing up the b corp uh, as a legal structure as a sort of you know legal fiction about the relationship between economics and uh, a, a general social good that that cashes out in particular practical organizations of shared life. Uh, I, I think that's really non-trivial and in some ways um, more, much more, there's a reason why the effective altruists and the long-termists get so much more of the press and the B Corps get so much less. Um and it's because there's something in that structure, that way of thinking about the role of the oikos in the polis that gets back to the notion of the zoon politikon, 
the 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 political animal the idea that what it is when humans gather in groups is this process sorry going back to aristotle this process of uh making sense of what we ought to be up to and i think that sense that when we gather in groups part of what we're up to fundamentally is trying to decide together what to think of as the good is something that's at least potentially brought back onto the table. I mean, I'm not as, as sanguine about that as, as, as some people, but, but at least potentially brought back onto the table by the structure uh, of B corporations in ways that it's absolutely not on the table for the effective altruists. They are just sheer happy oligarchs who feel better about themselves, but are fundamentally committed to oligarchy. Happy oligarchs. I like that. And well, I, was, I made light of it, but uh, you know, it is, I don't know how you guys feel. It is, it is an interesting time to be um, a professor, um, you know, especially if you're teaching about politics and in the, in the social world and, you know, Abby does uh, things with, you know, the, in terms of business and, and this whole kind of template we're, we're existing under, like sometimes, you know, we, we deal in these things and, and maybe we just kind of, I don't think it's like cynical, but we're just a little bit more comfortable with like how dire things are. And I, I find myself sometimes in like, you know, a politics class, like just saying some stuff and it's, it's really hard hitting, like in terms of its direness. And then I look up and I see like, you know, 20 year old, like <laughs> frightened eyes and like, you know, like, holy shit. And I'm like, and I was like, well, no, you guys are going to be fine. It's I fine. don't, I tell them we're fucked. <laughs> no, but, 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 but that doesn't necessarily mean like, we're not like 1970s Mad Max fucked. We're like 2000s Mad Max fucks. It's much. <laughs> it's a much better. It's a higher. It like seriously, because it's the difference between we're living right now in a profoundly nihilistic political structure, where the general assumption, and this is why I dislike some things like effective altruism so much. The general assumption is we cannot do anything about the structure of the world at all. Right. We can just. Yeah. Thing, everything is necessarily as it is. There's nothing to negotiate. There's nothing to collect to figure it out. We just, you know, it is how it is. And we're just going to march onto like the next worst thing. And we'll try to feel better about it along the way. Um, and, 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 and I think like what's hopeful is saying, no, our current collection of structures cannot actually sustain themselves as they are while also addressing the deferred costs associated with with their their organization over the last 150 years. And so those deferred costs as they come due will necessitate restructurings of societies in a variety of different ways. And that's actually a very hopeful mm. position. And that's why no, to go back sure. to Abby's B Corps, it's why although I'm a Marxist and like not at all sold on the basic principle of saving capitalism, I do think they're genuinely interesting. Right. And that's something um, you so, talk about on your podcast, right, Gabby? That's true. That's true. And I just wanted to clarify one point. I'm not sure if I was clear earlier that B Corp is a certification, but benefit corporations, um, that's where we see some of that legal structural change. Um, so similar names, slightly different flavor. But I think to your point, Ira, yeah. So on my podcast, Growing Good Business, um, we interview um, people leading companies, whether they're more entry-level people or in the C-suite, but kind of from where you're sitting, how do you create the structural change within hierarchical organizations to be able to really achieve goals that are aligned with meaning and purpose? Um, and I think to Ira's point, how do you define that purpose and kind of what we look at to some degree, um, but that I've written about with my colleague, Dan Justin, is really redefining how we think about human nature. So um, economists have typically seen us as rational and competitive um, and individualistic. And how can we look to different wisdom traditions, so whether it's Eastern traditions, indigenous traditions, um, as well as things like quantum physics that are really saying, actually, we're fundamentally interconnected. Um, mm. Human beings evolutionarily are collaborative. And that's not to say that we don't have a competitive side as well, but that's not the full story. And I think when we look at a fuller picture of what a human being is, um, 
when we go back in time before the scientific revolution and the industrial revolution um, and a lot of white male privileged Greek philosophers telling us what humans are and what the world is, um, that there's really this very different picture of of humanity. um, And how do we redefine, to Ira's point, the entire global economic system to mirror these more virtuous sides of human nature, to be more inclusive, more collaborative, more interdependent, um, which reflects, I think, a fuller reality of humanity and of who we really are. Um, And so, yeah, in Growing Good Business, we get into some of these topics a little bit. Well, that sounds uh, excellent. And I will definitely put a link. Um, You should check out Abby's show without a doubt. Um, uh, I will have a link to it in the show notes. And in some ways, your point and Iris' point before takes us to a place where I I think it's a a good place to kind of get your thoughts on and and perhaps uh, move towards wrapping up. Going back to Ira's point of the stakes, what are the stakes in this? And I I mentioned it earlier, and I want to kind of circle back to this idea of um, who's deciding what is good and and how are we deciding, you know, who ends up in those positions. And I want to just read briefly um, a quotation from John Stuart Mill's Utilitarianism um, when he's talking about this issue of quantity and quality. And he says, the test of quality and the rule for measuring it against quantity being the preference felt by those who, in their opportunities of experience to which must be added habits of self-consciousness and self-observation, are best emphasizing, best furnished with the means of comparison, right? And I mean, there's there it is. Like people like John Stuart Mill, probably. And and why I want I want to stress this, and I think it connects to the points both of you just raised in terms of the stakes and in terms of who's deciding what what you know what are the bounds of this is that I think often you know and 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 it somewhat fits in with the the kind of headline gloss story of the uh, bankman fried you know he's recently just said like you know trotted out like oh we're, everyone just wants us to be woke liberals and this whole woke thing and you know everyone um down you know saying like social justice warriors and everything and, and i think it it it's it's a classic kicking up a big dust form that clouds the real stakes of including other voices of including other people into the discourse about the good that what often happens is you get the John Stuart Mill, like there are smart people like me who will be able to judge. And and so that it's not just some like, you know, inclusion just for inclusion's sake, or let's just give some to a minority group or so forth. It's really important to encompass the true kind of mosaic of humanity in these kinds of debates, in these discourses, and that the stakes are very real. And this flippant dismissal of like, oh, you're just being woke or virtue signaling. Oh, maybe some of that goes on, but there are real people who have been left out of the debate systematically for centuries in, in including them is a social good in and of itself. And uh, maybe we can go to Abby first, because I think a lot of this can tie into businesses trying to be more inclusive or um, this kind of discourse. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, I mean, I think that there are certainly businesses that at least in their rhetoric and on paper are trying to be more inclusive. Um, but I do think it starts at this more fundamental structural level of how do people even get to a point where they're able to acquire capital um, to start their business? How do things like algorithms um, have bias in terms of people's credit scores and whether they can get certain loans that I think the whole system, which, by the way, I think it's important to name, was based on colonialism, based on racism, based on sexism, based on ableism, and so on, um, that structurally there are a lot of people who are left out of these conversations. There are a lot of people um, who are not able to go to business school. I mean, I think even working at a university kind of puts us in this particular bubble in terms of whose voices are included. Um, what framework of education do we even promote and who's part of those conversations? Um, and so I think it takes a lot of intellectual humility and a lot of listening mm-hmm. um, and a lot of really going into the spaces where these other voices are um, and just kind of listening Um And I don't have a good example necessarily of businesses that are starting to do that quite yet. Um, I think some are starting to look at their hiring practices a little bit differently. Um, 
But I think even looking at things like the WTO and different trade rules and who really has a seat at the table and who really has a voice in those conversations, um, I think those are really critical questions to interrogate and to kind of re-examine who does get a voice and the extent to which the global north has always dominated these kinds of systems and kind of what needs to change um, at the same time that businesses are changing who they're bringing into these conversations. Yeah, right on. Let's turn it to Ira for you. We'll give you the last word here, Ira. So I think this is where 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 my optimism really, really shines through. Um, the fact that the current structures of our world are totally untenable means that there's a lot of uh, a possibility. You know, we're, we're in a moment of actually much more radical possibility than I think most people feel because most people correctly, consciously or unconsciously feel closed in by the structures of the current world. The way, the amount of capital that accumulated through colonialist expropriation of labor, both in slavery and in um, the extractive processes in the colonies, uh, both pre and post uh, 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 colonial revolutions, um, freedom revolutions. Uh, is essentially insurmountable from a global North, global South perspective. That's why you see things like in the most recent Conference of the Parties that just uh, wrapped up in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt. They arrive at like a trade, like an absolutely landmark deal. It's a huge deal. We're going to, we're going to set up a fund to help global South, roughly speaking, countries deal with the consequences of climate catastrophe that are brought upon them by a historical accumulation of carbon debt uh, uh, um, by global North countries, which is why they're global North and the others are global South. And so on the one hand, it's landmark. It's a huge deal. On the other hand, it's like a piddly hundred million dollars or something. It's nothing. It's like, what do you, why even bother? I remember been hundred billion. It's not, it's not even remotely close to the scale that's necessary. And so on the one hand, you can look at this and be like, well, this is fucking ridiculous. None of these people are serious at all. And on some level, that's really true. In our particular moment of oligarchy globally, our leaders are just not really serious, broadly speaking. I mean, there's a few serious people in the mix, but by and large, the people who are supposed to know, they're sort of man children. There's a lot of Sam Bakeman freeds. Um, but, but, the structures of obligation that we start writing, however inadequately, into our world system now will be part of the material that's lying around to make better worlds with soon. And that's, I think, actually in a very non-trivial way, some uh, grounds for hope, something to feel good about. You know, and I think that's what we're kind of sorting through right now is we still haven't come to grips with how to make a coherent social world um, that includes a lot more voices, that takes notions of, of democratic accountability and representation in a real way seriously. Um, and, and I think that is, you know, the signal and noise kind of thing for all of the noise about woke and virtue signaling and this and that. Um, the, the signal to me is a, a society um, globally and in particular within the U.S. trying to recalibrate um, or or fight recalibration of social institutions that include voices that have been systematically silenced or ignored for it, you know decades. And this is, but this is my point on that, Kevin. We are absolutely failing, and we will fail. But <laughs> no, no, but 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 the effort to do so also matters profoundly because that itself becomes the material out of which we build on the ashes of the present order. Well said. Yes. Maybe not to be Pollyannish. It's not going to fix things right away, but I think the process is important. And that's where I, I really wanted to circle back into that. What are the stakes? Um, and I think that's why you get a bunch of, you know, largely white dude billionaires at the forefront of EA. Right. I mean, I don't think that's a, a coincidence um, on, on multiple levels. And um, I think uh, there is optimism, though, that these voices are you know, demanding rightfully to be heard and, and no longer being silenced. And, um, you know, again, some of it may come from different places, but I look at a lot of this kind of um, 
cherry picked kind of um, uh, anecdotal dismissal of like, quote unquote, wokeism and so forth as a way to kind of shove those voices back down to parody them, to make fun of them. And and I think um, maybe it's not going to solve it this time around. But uh, after the collapse, as Ira says, that it, it will provide a template for our <laughs> the humans uh, reemergence, maybe from your lips to God's ears. Right. So on that note, um, Abby Schneider and Ira Allen, thank you so much. Uh, this has been really awesome. Uh, we covered a, a ton of ground in, in an hour. Um, thanks to both of you really bringing just such thoughtful insights to the conversation. Thank you, Kevin. All right. Well, thanks to everyone for tuning in. And again, please be sure to check out Abby's podcast. Uh, a link will be in the show notes and keep up to date on all the exciting things coming forward on the Interesting Times podcast. All right. Thanks so much. Bye.